Greetings and salutations. I am Just Bob. Welcome to Just a Podcast installment 24. And hard to believe, 24 in the can. Well, 23, I guess. <laughs> 24 is in the works right now. Today, we're talking about my band and other purely theoretical concepts. So like a lot of musicians, I began playing when I was a teenager. I got my first set of drums when I was 15. Of course, I'd been exposed, introduced, what have you, to music a little bit earlier in life. I took guitar lessons when I was eight. You know, I went to Catholic school for kindergarten through third grade, and I've mentioned this before, but it seems like in uh, or among the faculty of every Catholic grade school, there is one lay teacher who plays guitar. <laughs> I think it's like a requirement. They have to have one. And uh, in in my school, that teacher just happened to be my second grade teacher. Her name was Ms. Presto. And she looked, if my memory serves, a lot like Ann B. Davis, who played Alice on the Brady Bunch. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. I mean, it was it is. The thing was, she was trying to teach me based on the assumption that I was left-handed, which is not an unreasonable or unwarranted assumption, considering I wrote with my left hand. But it turned out, and I wouldn't discover this, until my uh, foibles in Little League later that same year, which I've also talked about before. Um, but I try. I, I I played in Little League for for two years, and at first, the coaches and other players uh, thought I was the worst player in the world <laughs> because. I was supposedly left-handed, and yet I could not hit the side of a barn with a baseball, throwing it with my left hand. And they noticed at some point that I was consistently picking up the ball with my right hand and transferring it to my left hand. And they're like... Have you tried throwing with your other hand? And I was like, yeah, I throw almost everything with my other hand. I'm not even sure why I'm being required to use my left hand here. So someone loaned me a right-handed glove to get through practice that day. I started throwing right-handed, and lo and behold, turned out I actually had a pretty good amount of arm strength and accuracy for an 8-year-old. And so I've been what's called mixed dominant for my entire life since then. You know, a lot of people will toss about the word ambidexterity, ambidextrous. And they use it wrong because the real meaning of ambidextrous is that you can you can do something uh, equally well with either hand. And that's not me. <laughs> There's certain things I can do with my left hand and certain things I can do with my right hand and rarely do the twain ever meet. And it's strange, but it's not really that uncommon. I've come to discover that there are an awful lot of people who fall into that category. And like me, they didn't realize how widespread of a thing it was and... I think it's because the majority of people in the world are hardcore right-handers, which means that they do everything with their right hands. You know, some people – I know some people who are right-handed and it's like their left hand is just dead weight. <laughs> you know, it serves no function whatsoever. They do absolutely everything right-handed. And I've, I've met a few people, but they're not as common, who are the opposite. 
You know, they do everything with their left hand. And, uh, you know, it's weird. People expect you to fall entirely into one category or another. But the upshot of all this was eventually I started playing guitar left, uh, right hand. I started playing guitar right handed. And I found out, wow, this is a lot easier <laughs> this way. So when I started playing drums, again, I was 14 uh, or 15, excuse me. Did I say 14 before? 15, I should say. When I got my first drum kit and I, I set it up, uh, you know, right-handed and started playing that way right away. And it it came to me quickly and I... I formed a band, and I was in that band for 10 years. I was the drummer, and over the course of time, which happens, you know, in a lot of settings, but I was called upon or or volunteered, I suppose I should say, to take on other roles. For example, when my band first started there was nobody well we didn't have a singer at first and so we were writing songs and there was nobody to come up with lyrics for it so I said well I can write lyrics you know I can write I mean I've written a book I've written a bunch of articles well I hadn't yet at that point but between then and now I can do it Neil Peart can do it I can do it and so on our first couple albums, even even the songs I didn't sing, I wrote lyrics to a lot of them. And then later on, we had other members come in who were songwriters in their own right, which, uh, which is great because I think the more different voices you have in a band, the better. And... My band it was called Cat's Eye, K-T-Z-I. And our last lineup, there was five instrumentalists, five singers, five songwriters. You know, everybody did everything. And I learned over time that there is a reason why bands like that are exceedingly rare. You know, the Beatles were like that, all four of them played instruments and all of them wrote and all of them sang. The Eagles were the same way. And most of their big hits were sung by their drummer. And same thing for the band. They only had three out of five singers, sometimes four. Sometimes Robbie Robertson would sing, but usually it was uh, Levon Helm, Rick Danko, Richard Manuel, no traditional frontman. I've always sort of embraced that. I think it's because my experience with frontmen has been uneven. You know, um, in my band uh, early on, we had a singer who was maybe not technically gifted, but had a lot of other skills, you know, was a decent writer, was uh, a good front man, was good at interacting with the audience and stuff like that. And, and honestly, the singing part, you can learn that. I think if you're at all musically inclined, you can, you can pick it up, you know, you can, you can, you know, you can sort of fudge your way through that. And that's, that's what I did. I mean, I was not, a singer by any stretch at first. You know, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of doing it wrong until you learn how to do it right. And I think that's... It's honest, you know, because not everyone is skilled at the things we want to do. You may have noticed... At some point in uh, your travels through life that there are a lot of people who enjoy singing and 
Not all of those people are good at it. <laughs> and when they're not, it can be extremely painful to listen to. But I always felt like, you know, if you're going to put out music, you know, if you're going, this was particularly true in the 90s when uh, recording equipment was not so ubiquitous and it wasn't so easy to get a hold of and everything. Um, that buzzing you're hearing is a fan. <laughs> Sorry, I had to turn the fan on because it is hot in here. But anyway, there was a time when if you were going to record, this was a very big expenditure of money and time in order to, to do that. And so you had to have your act together, and it really was not a really great idea to do cover songs because that would limit the possibility of a commercial release without getting permissions from publishers and things like that. You know, if you write your own songs, then you don't have to worry about that stuff. You can do whatever you want with them. And and so I, I really have never had any interest in playing in cover bands, and it's unfortunate because, you know... A lot of bands are cover bands. A lot of bands have to because it is much more difficult to get paying gigs when you're at a certain level. You know, I have a, I have a lot of friends who are musicians and many of them, you know, have uh, told me you get to a certain point or a certain level where you're playing venues of a certain size and you're you're more able to do original material. You know, it's more welcome. People are more sort of open to hearing things for the first time. You know, if you're like in a bar and there's a band playing, usually at least according to some of of the people that run venues like that, they'll tell you they want to hear familiar stuff. They want to hear music that the audience recognizes. Uh, and I, I understand that, you know. If, if the audience likes the music they're hearing, they're more likely to hang around and buy drinks. Once you get to venues that are a bit larger, you know, that's not, obviously that's not a... A concern, uh, and I, I'll I'll be honest with you. My band, none of the bands that I was in for any length of time ever really got to that point. Uh, my my original band, Cat's Eye, kind of morphed into this thing called um, Static Automatic. I played with them for about a year and a half, and we got close, man, real close. I mean, we were playing on. Some high stages, you know, you know, you know, you're getting somewhere when it gets to the point where the stage is high enough that you would injure yourself if you jumped off of it <laughs> or fell off of it. God forbid if you fell off of it. Um, I never fell off the stage. I've had my cymbal stands fall off the stage before, but I have never fallen off the stage uh, yet. You know, I'm not ruling out the possibility. It may, it may happen to me at some point in the future. But anyway, so my, uh, yeah, my experience with Static Automatic, that band split up. Or, well, I'll, I'll tell you what happened, okay? I was told that the band split up. But then I saw them on... I want to say their website and they were announcing a show and there was someone else playing drums. <laughs> so 
they didn't break up really. They just wanted me out and did not have the gumption, I suppose, to tell me so. Whatever. I, I, I've long since made my peace with those guys, and they know that I love them. They're my brothers. You know, it's kind of kind of how it has to be, you know. But after that, I, I didn't play for a long time. And uh, <clears throat> uh, about, about seven years or so, you know, I, there was life things going on. I was in school. I was uh, working multiple jobs and, you know, stuff like that. And, and for a long time, <clears throat> I didn't write any songs. I didn't produce any songs i didn't play you know i didn't i didn't do anything my my instruments sat in the closet and collected dust and uh then in recent year well recent we're talking like around 2010 so this is 12 13 years ago at this point but i i, I started to feel the bug again and i got a new set of drums and but the thing was i i really was not able to practice that much because I lived in close quarters with other residences and so in noise factor I mean I'll tell you how bad the noise factor was at that at the place I was living in then I got complaints from playing guitar at like three in the morning but it wasn't like it wasn't an acoustic guitar it was an electric guitar that was not even plugged into an amp. So do you realize how quiet that is? An electric guitar not plugged into an amp. You can hear it through a wall. I can't even imagine what else these people must have heard from my apartment. You know what I mean? We're talking sex noises. We're talking uh, the uh, bad movies that I watch. We're talking about... Uh, me singing along to Greece, you know what I mean? Embarrassing things. But uh, I digress. So I got back into playing again, and I found that in the time that I was, like, out of it, that technology had advanced and recording had advanced and all of this stuff, and it was a lot more feasible to do in the home, and I ended up recording an album in my living room and it was a lot of fun for me because it was like I was playing all the instruments so I was playing the drums and the bass and I was playing the keyboards and the guitars and I was doing the singing and it was like all of the frustrations that I'd had from working with other people were gone because I could like do whatever I wanted. If I wanted to do a song that was like eight minutes long and five minutes of that is guitar solos, I could do that, you know? And it was great. It was like the perfect excuse to get like super self-indulgent. And that's really the best time and place for that because you don't want to inflict, and I, I know this also from experience, you don't want to inflict your musical experimentation on any, you know, unsupposing bandmates. Have you ever seen Spinal Tap? There's that scene right after Nigel leaves the band and they're playing the amphitheater of a theme park. And before they go out on stage, they're going through the set list and they're paring down all of Nigel's songs because he's not there anymore and they wind up with like 10 minutes or something like that material. And Derek Small says two words, jazz odyssey. And... David protests, well, I don't think we need to be going into a, a, a freeform jazz exploration in front of a festival crowd. So Gilligan cut to them on stage doing exactly that. And it's like this, it's like all the band members are playing different songs. 
is what it sounds like. And then and then David st- steps up to the mic, and he says, "Derek Smalls on bass. He wrote this." <laughs> like he doesn't want anybody in the crowd to assume that this was his fault. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I've and I'm also I'm also reminded of something that Kirk Hammett said about the he was talking about the the songwriting process for the Black album. And it's well known that those songs are they're a lot more condensed and concise than some of the stuff they had done on their first couple of albums. Kirk was saying, talking about being on tour behind Justice, they're playing the song Injustice for All every night. And, you know, that, that's a long song. It's, what is it, about like around 10 minutes long or whatever? And Kirk Hammett said they get to like around minute seven and he can see people in the audience yawning. (laughs) And that is really just, that's like the kiss of death. (laughs) You know, that's just awful. Awful! It's the last thing you want. And so they said, well, you know, we're going to respond to that. And they came into the next album, and, and the songs were, they were a lot more compact and... They had a lot of the fat trimmed off them, you know? And I don't think that's a bad thing. The bad, You know, the Black Album gets a bad rap by a lot of people. It's one of those things like Nickelback and Greta Van Fleet that's popular for people to bash on. And I don't get it. And I, I think it may be just because, you know, that album came out in the summer of 1991 and it was it was released in August of 1991 now in August of 1991 I was just getting my first band together you know uh, we'd been playing together for just a matter of weeks at that point and so it was a time where my musical antenna I was uh, I was sad. I turned 17 that summer just to put that into perspective, my my musical antenna were 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 raised, and I was extremely receptive. Uh, but Justice was the first Metallica. That's when I got on board with Metallica. Okay, so this is about eighty nine. This is a couple years earlier. That's where I sort of discovered Metallica as a high school freshman. I think that's. <laughs> pretty much universal, you know. If you're if you were a teenage metalhead then it probably started by listening to Metallica when you're 14. And so I really didn't know any better and I I discovered Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets and Kill 'em All after that. So I'd kind of gotten caught up to where Metallica were by the time they put out the Black Album, and I, I remember listening to it with my buddies and going, wow, this is really good, <laughs> you know, because the production, it, it sounded better than anything that they had done up until then. The bass was was very loud and clear and distinct, and it, just every, it was just a really well-produced recording. And... I thought, you know, that's that's a pivot for these guys, and it was interesting. And then I remember, of course, after that with Load and Reload, and even I was kind of rolling my eyes by the time Reload came out. But, I, you know, I was reading a review of Lux Eterna in, uh, I want to say it was Stereo Gum. Stereo Gum is like the music website that I, I, I'm, I look at the most because it seems like the general editorial perspective that they have there aligns very neatly with my own. You know what I mean? 
Like they're kind of on the same page as me, musically speaking. And this review, it, it made a, a comment that really stuck with me, and it was after listening to the last couple of albums from Metallica in which they seem to be trying to recapture their early days and uh, the review of 72 Seasons, it was like, you know, this album sounds like it was Frankenstein together out of pieces from their previous albums. And it's it's so much so that you can you listen to Load and Reload now and they sound like 100 times more fresh than they did when they were first released. Now, I want to stress that this is a matter of subjectivity. Not everyone is going to see it the same way. And if there is anything that being in radio has taught me, it is that no two people ever see anything the same way when it comes to music. You would be shocked, or maybe you wouldn't be shocked. Maybe you'd understand, but I get messages from people all the time asking me, why do you play this band? These guys suck. And just as many messages from other people saying, I love this band, keep playing them. So you're not going to get 100% agreement ever. I just, I don't think it's possible. I think it's just impossible. And I, I also think it's foolish to even even attempt that. You can't please everybody. And my philosophy when it comes to that and a lot of other things is do what you do best. You know, play to your own strengths. And who cares what the other guy is doing? Trying to beat someone else at their own game is a concept that works a lot better in fiction than it does in real life, in my my experience. You know, you can... You can watch what the other guy does and try and do it better, or you can just say, well, I know this is what I'm good at, so this is what I'm going to do. You know, it's like I said earlier about a lot of people like to sing, but not everyone is a good singer. <clears throat> That's true in so many areas. And for me, as a, as a creative person, you know, get, I mean, getting into radio for me was not a coincidence following my years as someone who was like tangentially involved in the music industry. You know, it was like a, a, a pragmatic, I suppose, to say that, wow, it would be nice to have a job where I get paid to listen to music all the time. <laughs> and I, I can't say exactly that. That was my line of thought because it wasn't, but it, it 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 has sort of had that benefit for me. You know, I I I, I kind of figured out at a certain point that uh, radio for me it wasn't really so much about what music is playing. You know, I mean, I was on a country station for ten years. And if anything, I, I was able to kind of divorce myself from the music because it just was not wasn't my wasn't my taste, you know. As compared to the stuff that we play on Bob now, which which is, you know, uh, there's a high degree of overlap with with between what is on the station and and what I listen to in my free time. And that's also the kind of music that I like to write and play as as a musician. So 
So I, I made a few attempts to get into bands that were uh, already mostly complete. Um, the first one, it, it it turned out to be, you know, the whole cover songs thing again. They're doing these these seventies uh, and early eighties, you know, classic rock stuff which I enjoy listening to. Um, you know, it's like flip over to 92 on the goat, our sister station, you know, like the stuff that's on there. That was, I think every one of those songs they asked me to learn is, is played on the goat. And, you know, it was stuff like, um, highway to hell. No, not highway to hell. It's a long way to the top by ACDC. It was, uh, separate ways, by Journey, which uh, remind me to enlighten you on my thoughts on the recent cover of that one. <laughs> but it was stuff like that, Led Zeppelin, you know, a couple Led Zeppelin songs. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's guys like Steve Perry and Robert Plant. These are famous tenors. And my natural vocal range is uh, baritone. It's a little lower than that. So I, I, you know, I had a lot of trouble singing these songs. And I was not invited back to another practice with them. And I, I when, when something like that happens, you get a, like a text message saying, you know, thanks for coming by last night. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the guys and I talked and we don't think it's going to work out moving forward, which, you know, that's really as basic as you can get, you know? And so I, I, I look at this text and I'm just like, like seething, you know, cause it's, it's a matter of ego and it's a matter of pride and all that other stupid stuff that clouds our judgment. <laughs> yeah. But I realized it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked. Not just because I don't have the vocal range to sing the songs that they wanted to play, but I don't have any interest in doing the songs they want to play. That's the other thing, you know? I mean, I'll listen to Journey and Zeppelin and ACDC on the radio. I don't want to play those songs. I'd rather listen to them. I don't want to play them. I, I would much rather play original music, which brings me to the next band, and this was a little bit more recently, and no names naming because I really do love this band and the people in it uh, that I played with. Uh, there is no ill will of any kind. There's no ill will, will towards anybody, but there's definitely... Nothing but good feeling there. But it was a musical thing for me, you know, because I got to uh, practicing with them a couple times, and it went really well, you know. I mean, I'm and I'm, I'm playing guitar now and uh, doing some some vocals, but they, they, they had done a, a recording project, and it was like four songs, and I was learning them in parts. And, you know, after a month or so of that, I just got to where it was like, you know, having to learn these songs to me is like no different than doing cover songs, you know? Like, if I'm playing a song that I wrote, you can't tell me that I'm not doing it right, you know? I mean, it's one thing to say, this is the song, play it the way that you feel it, and and going with that, you know? But th there was an expectation that I would emulate the recordings as closely as possible, which I don't feel is unreasonable. That is a perfectly reasonable thing to ask, but it turns out that it was just not something that I had any interest in doing. 
So I stepped away there, I, and I realized, you know, two things. One, if I'm going to successfully play with other people, it's probably going to be in a setting in which, you know, I'm, like, instigating things, you know, bringing people together and and writing the songs and, and stuff like that. And I, I've been playing guitar pretty intensively for the last 10 years or so. And there was a point in that time when I kind of realized, you know, I'm not a drummer anymore. I just, I don't think of myself as a drummer anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm able to play drums. I could, I could do, do me some, uh, what I call, uh, Dave Grohl deadheading. (laughs) You know, it's where he goes to Queens of the Stone Age and he goes to, um, you know, like them crooked vultures and, you know where where he just goes in and 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 does the the whole superstar drummer thing, and then and then goes back to the Foo Fighters. You know, I, I could I could probably do that if I wanted. And and my experience as a drummer is has come in extremely useful in in production because I know what I know what a a drum track in a song should sound like what the drum part of a song should sound like you know people a lot of people use uh drum machines uh, of some type and you know the drums it sounds like a drum machine and the reason is there's no variance to it you know a lot of people say well it's a feel and you know, program drums are fake, which is stupid. It is. It's stupid. It's dumb. But, you know, I, I, I played drums for a long time, and so I could program a track of drums that would sound to you or to anybody like the real thing because basically is the real thing. You know, where to put cymbal crashes in and where to put fills in and where to throw toms in, all that stuff. You know, that's that's second nature. And, uh, but yeah, I, I realized, you know, I am devoting like 100% of my musical, no, not 100%, but I'm devoting like 90% of my musical energy to playing guitar and the other 10% to playing keyboards. It's like, I don't even have a place to set my drum... I don't even have my whole drum set in my house anymore. So, and it's like, you know, it was a good experience. It was fun. But I just don't have any interest in in doing that again. And I, I, I said to a, a buddy of mine, you know, there's two bands that I would join as a drummer. And there are. And... I'm not going to name them because that would be mortifying. But neither one of them is a national band. They're they're both regional bands, but they're they're friends of mine. So it's a bit of a different story. But what I want to do is get my own sort of thing together, where I'm the singer and I'm the the guitar player, and get some some like-minded people to back me. The problem is, I you know I don't know really an effective way to recruit people. You know, there's, um, (coughs) you know, there's like Facebook groups and Craigslist and stuff like devoted to musicians. And I've tried them all, but never really had satisfactory results and I'm starting to worry that it might be just because I have impossible standards. <laughs> you know, when you go for like seven, eight years without dating, which I did do because it's not necessarily that my standards are stupid high. 
they're just weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's one thing to have really excessively high standards, and I, I don't think my standards are stupid high. I think they're reasonable, but I, I, I also think that they're a little odd. And so finding somebody with the right combination has proven to be challenging. Let's just put it that way. Um, I, I went through a lot of years being sort of afraid of performing and having really a lot of like anxiety and stuff about that. And I think that's outweighed by the desire to play. You know, when I was playing in front of audiences regularly, you know, there was a point like in the mid to later 90s where I was doing gigs, you know, sometimes one or two a week for a while there. And I, I don't remember having any problem with stage fright then. You know, it just was, a th and of course, you know, for me, having the the drums in front of me was definitely like a, like a security blanket. Um, but I feel like I have a lot more experience and, and um, musical knowledge than I did. You know, it's just a matter of finding somebody who would be interested in playing the songs I'm writing. And I don't know, I think once an effective method to do that presents itself to me, you know, I think I'm just sort of figuring it out right now. But, you know, I kind of feel like uh, it'll be worth the investment of time, you know, because I've had opportunities to play with people and I just, whatever reason, didn't feel right. Didn't feel right, so, you know, I pass. And starting to get to the notion that maybe the right opportunity is not going to present itself. And so I need to go out into the world and find it. And I get that, you know, that's how I, it's how I got here <laughs> really. And, uh, you know, once, once I, I decided that radio was something I wanted to do with the rest of my life. You know, it was like the first time in my adult life that it was like, okay, I want to make this my career. I want to do this, you know, um, cause rock star is not a career ambition. <laughs> it's not, it's not a, a sustainable thing. That's the thing, you know, a lot of people, and I see this on the socials, a lot of people, don't really have an understanding of how the music business works in a lot of ways. And, I mean, I understand that. I mean, I wouldn't expect everybody to. But I, I studied music business in college. I actually took a course devoted to it and learned all about the way record deals work and stuff like that. Um, but people assume that you got a record deal, you know, you're rich and that's really not true of most working musicians, you know, the, the, the big superstars. Yeah. Some of those are, uh, you know, you're, you're like Bruce Springsteen and and Madonna and Bob Dylan and, you know. Uh, but it's not a sustainable model anymore because the, the rise of digital media and 
uh, kind of led to physical media taking a back seat. And that trend is starting to reverse itself now. We're hearing stories about high-profile musicians who are opening up vinyl pressing plants, which is fantastic. I mean, I don't, I don't own a turntable, and I have no interest. Like, I did the whole hi-fi thing back in the 80s, and I, I don't really, <laughs> you know, I don't have a, a need for that in my home now, but... It's a popular it's a it's a it's a popular thing for people to collect these days and that's that's cool. You know. I you know there's music snobs just like there is beer snobs and other varieties of snobbery. I try to I try not to pay too much attention to it because I'm I'm I try not to be a snob really about anything. Kind of feel like when it comes to that sort of thing, it's all subjective anyway. And so everyone's opinion is valid in its own way. And I'll, I'll give you an example of the sort of thing I'm talking about. Uh, okay, beers. All right. Now, I... Drink mostly Budweiser in public, and I have since I turned 21, you know, 27 years ago, or however long it's been. And uh, I have had people in bars uh who knew me, I want to stress. I don't have strangers coming up here and bashing on me, but I have people in bars, you know, joking with me, kidding me, razzing me about drinking Bud. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not a quality thing to be drinking or whatever. That's fine. I, I chuckle. I don't care. You know, I'll tell you this. And I, I've mentioned on the air before that I think, People who claim to like IPAs are lying. And that's a joke. I don't literally believe that to be true. But I'll tell you this. I don't care for them myself. <clears throat> you know, I, I had a friend that worked with me here at the station a few years ago who loved IPAs and would rave about them. And I, I, I would go over to hang out and, you know, you want a beer? Sure. And I'd be up. It's the most bitter thing I've ever tasted in my life. But it's subjective. You know, there's like no way to prove <laughs> the quality of the taste of something. Either you like it or you don't. And and that's fine. You know, I don't care. But don't try and come at me with, you know, your... You know, you got poor taste because of, of some because that's that's a that's a leap. And uh, I'll tell you this: after this recent brouhaha about Bud Light and its partnership with Dylan Mulvaney, I'll be drinking Bud Light in public. Because I think that's pretty cool. And I feel like to be in opposition of a brand for having the temerity, the almighty gall of demonstrating itself to be fully encompassing and accepting of all people is, well, I don't understand. I don't get it. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. I want to see w more woke brands. What do you think about that? Because, I mean, to me, and I actually got into an argument earlier about wokeness and the definition of it, but to me, it's inclusion. It's about saying that Everyone is invited to the party, 
and really meaning that. And it's about saying that a person's choices with respect to their own identity should be honored. Okay? And I've heard some say, well, that's just feeding their delusion. No, it's not. Okay? It isn't. And I'm not going to... Um, argue that point. I'm not going to. You know? That is where I stand, and that is where I will always stand. I really... I kind of feel like that's just all there is to it. And I know there are those who have a differing perspective on it. And... To say that it is just a simple matter of point of view, I don't accept that. I don't. You know, if I tell you, nice to meet you, my name is Just Bob, you can call me Just Bob, and you come at me with, well, is that what it says on your birth certificate? Is that what it says on your driver's license? Well, no, it's not. But what does that have to do with anything? You know what I mean? Like, if I meet you and I say, please call me just Bob, and you refuse to do it because it's not what's on my ID... You know what I mean? It just means that anyone who does that, in my opinion, is kind of an a-hole. Because think about this for a moment. What harm does it cause what harm does it cause you to honor my preference? about my identity. You know, if I meet you and you say, call me Joe, I'll call you Joe. (laughs) You know, if someone comes over and addresses you as Arthur, I'm still going to call you Joe because it's what you asked me to call you. To me, this is a no-brainer. It is a no-brainer. And I, I also think that The more that we focus on how we are different from each other, the more importance those differences are going to take on. Do you know what I mean? If you look at someone and all you see is the ways that they are different from you, that's alarming to me. It really is. And... I kind of feel like if we embrace the ways that we are similar and we recognize that most of us have a lot more in common than perhaps we realize and sort of charge ourselves with discovering what that is. I think it's only it's only a positive and uh it's a pipe dream I suppose or 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 somewhat far fetched perhaps but I hope that sometime beyond my years that will come to that as a species, as a planet. 
and more and more humans come to the realization that hatred is pointless. It's pointless. And and I I, I really sincerely believe that. Um most people have some sort of redeeming value. Again, I, I say most because I, I, for the most part, I hate to generalize. There are exceptions to a lot of things. But I feel like if we remind ourselves, and this is not covering any new territory here. You know, it's a it's an old saying. But and that this source of the quote, I, I I don't know. I'll have to look it up when I'm done here. But in every person I meet I'm sorry, every person I meet is my better in some way. And in that I learn from them. And that's something I learned I don't know. I, mean, I don't even know. I, like I say, I don't even know where it came from. So I think I maybe I read it in How to Win Friends and Influence People. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But either way, I think that's a great philosophy. You know, everyone you meet possesses some knowledge or some skill or some quality that I don't have. And how cool would it be to view every interaction as an opportunity to learn from someone or impart some knowledge to someone? You know, I think that's cool. And... You might think, well, geez, JB, that's that's very idealistic of you. And I'll be honest with you, I don't regard myself as an idealist. I, I regard myself as a pragmatist more than anything. Because uh, I don't think, you know, the best <laughs> out of every... Situation. It's impossible. It's impossible to do that. It really is. And so, you know, we do the best we can. And that's that's really all we can do. But, I mean, like I said earlier, I, I to me, wokeness equals inclusion. And I don't see what's wrong with inclusion. People want to twist and turn it into something other, make a a negative out of it. But I'm sorry, I will never see it that way. To me, compassion and inclusion... And recognition, these are all important things that people need. You know, for your mental health, you need that stuff. And I frequently see people uh, negatively judging others for the pursuit of privileges that they have themselves. How hypocritical is that? So I think it's 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 a good thing to be mindful of you know if you take nothing else away from this podcast then take this away. Well, two things, all right. But one 
we are a lot more alike than we realize. And every person you meet has the potential to teach or to learn from you. And that is pretty awesome. Thank you for listening. I'm Just Bob. Until next time, stay fresh, cheese